Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10. 42-45. Good morning, church. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. My name is Elijah Daly. I get to be one of the ministers here on staff, and I love this church. Part of the reason I love this church is because we get to talk about Jesus because we really do believe he's the most important thing, which is why we're starting a new series today called Portraits of Jesus. Now, why portraits? Because they're meaningful. They're loaded with meaning. They often become the beginning of a, of a conversation as we see a portrait and we begin to analyze it more. Let me show you an example. Check out this, this portrait. So this is a portrait painted by Leonardo da Vinci. What's it called? The Mona Lisa. That's right. We all know this painting. It's one of the most popular paintings on the planet and it's priceless. Like literally it sits in the Louvre in France and it is against French law for that thing to be sold. But here's what I can tell you. Another one of da Vinci's paintings sold not too long ago for $450 million. And thanks to your generosity, it's hanging out in our lobby. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) Amazing though, right? I mean, like, why is this so valuable? How could this possibly be worth that much? Because the truth is, this probably go for even more. Why? Because it's more than a woman. It's more than just a woman. You see, this painting does some really amazing things, not only because it was painted by somebody who had such a broad you know, scheme of, of talents and skills, but also because it was painted in a way that was new, progressive. You see, that background behind her, behind her, that's the first time, one of the first times that an imaginary background was ever used in front of a woman that was sitting. And this painting was done during the Renaissance, which means that da Vinci was not just trying to create a copy of real life. He was painting an ideal. You see, when people saw this painting, they would know what to aspire for. Now, now look at it. Look at her. She's wearing aristocratic garments. She's wealthy. Her posture, it's proper. You know, most have said that she's not exceptionally beautiful. Maybe so, but she's also not exceptionally vain trying to fabricate an image or keep herself young. She simply sits content. And her smile bears witness to this. Now, it isn't overly stressed, but it's there. And it casts no wrinkle. And in general, she looks youthful. And her right hand covers her left. You see, da Vinci's trying to stress the ideal of this woman. She's virtuous. Now, look behind her. Look at the background. You can see the difference The difference between light and darkness, order and chaos, a path and a bridge move, move throughout which we can see. And darkness and jagged mountains fade into that which we can't. 
You see, regardless of what life may throw at us, we see a picture that reminds us of serenity, of contentment. It's more than a woman. I bet you guys didn't know I was such an art connoisseur. <laughs> well, how about this next image? Now, this next image, is a, it's a picture, an exact replica, in fact, of our senior pastor, Mark Christian. No, I'm just joking. This is a caricature, but isn't it funny how caricatures still tell us something, right? And we know, like Mark will say, will come up here and he'll make jokes about his baldness all the time. But the truth is, he's too humble to admit he has the most beautiful teeth in the room. Now, images tell us something. It's more than a picture. Why portraits of Jesus? Because each gospel is a portrait of who Jesus was. It's more than a book. It's more than a document. These aren't just diaries. It's not just a journal where people came and they wrote down observations and things that they saw, just random statements or whatever. This is, this is art. This is carefully constructed words. Every word, every movement, every story. It's like a brush stroke. It's like a color that's giving way to a larger image that transcends a brute proposition. This is meaningful. And so what we want you to see as we look at each gospel over the next four weeks is something truly beautiful in the person and work of Christ, but in a very specific way that that writer wanted you to see him. You see, what, what we want to do is, one, equip you and inspire you to be able to open up one of these books and begin to see something that you might have missed before, to, to be truly moved by its image, but also to be confronted by the image, to be confronted by a life of Jesus, by, by what he has done. Because the truth is, there is no neutral encounter with Jesus. He's far too dangerous for that. And so what we want to do today is look at the gospel of Mark. Now, I want to clarify. Mark Christian was the person on that painting. I'm talking about the gospel of Mark from now on. No confusion there. And here's what I believe Mark's gospel, the portrait, the painting that he wants you to see. Here's what I think it is in a sentence. The Son of God is in a hurry to serve and those are our points. That's where we're going today. So if you're a note taker, that's where we're going. The son of God in a hurry to serve. So let's look at the son of God. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark 1.1. 1, 1. And as you do that, I'll just tell you right now, it becomes pretty obvious that Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the son of God by the way that he starts this gospel. Listen to what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now, real quick, gospel is a term most of us are familiar with right? We know that it means good news, but I think that Mark is using it in a really significant way because the truth is this word gospel, good news, it was in Old Testament literature, but it was also all over Greek literature. And what it meant was when somebody had good news of a battle or a victory that had been won, of a victor that had been identified, what they would do is they would go and report that to all it impacted, to everybody who knew that the enemies had been defeated, that a victory had been won, and a victor was clear. And so Mark, he's writing here to Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying, if you're reading this, if you're hearing this, I need you to know that a victory has been one, a new victor has been identified, and it's Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, the other reason this is significant for Mark is that the term Son of God, it was often reserved for Caesars, the ruler of Rome. So Mark, he's actually getting a little bit political here. He's saying that the true victor isn't Rome, the true Son of God isn't Caesar, it's Jesus, the Messiah. A helpful reminder for us not to put our hope in earthly kingdoms. Mark is inviting us to a better one with a better king. 
And this is no doubt a message we probably need to hear right now when it seems like so many mistrust the authority, their intentions, their motivations, their character. Mark is trying to show us here a better one. This is the Son of God. See, the Son of God, it was a title of power and relation. And we can see that just a few sentences later in verse 11. Listen to what the Father speaks as Jesus is baptized. It says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And the Father speaks again in chapter 9 when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says this, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And it isn't just the Father that acknowledges who this is, but demons. Like in the very first miracle that Mark records that Jesus did, a demon confesses who he is. Listen, he says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. See, Mark is saying, This is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary prophet. This is no ordinary king. This is the Son of God. And he shows who he is by what he does. He casts out demons. He makes lame men walk. He calms a store. He restores a man's hand. He stops a woman's bleeding. He raises a dead girl back to life. He feeds thousands. And his wisdom guides people into life. You see, C.S. Lewis is forcing us into the same dilemma. I'm sorry, Mark is forcing us into the same dilemma that C.S. Lewis does. That Jesus is either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. You see, we must crown him or kill him. And Mark is trying to make it clear, this is the Son of God. Do you trust him? Will you trust him? You see, the Son of God is powerful. And the Son of God is present. And Mark says, the Son of God is in a hurry in a hurry, which I know sounds strange. Maybe this is a weird point to bring up, but it seems like Mark is fairly adamant about it. He uses a Greek word in this book 42 times. Euthus, it's translated immediately, 42 times. Let me give you an example. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. I could go on, but I think you get the picture. Everything's in a hurry. Everything's happening immediately. Not just Jesus, but everything and everyone is happening immediately. Why? Why is Mark doing this? Well, when we think about a hurry, our minds can go to different things. Like maybe it's an I'm late kind of hurry. Right? If you've ever been late before, you know. Like I remember not that long ago, I was rushing to Chick-fil-A as fast as I possibly could to get there for a lunch meeting. And I was, of course, hitting every red light on the way. That's what happens when you're late. And I finally got there, got out of my car, got inside, apologized. We had lunch. About an hour, hour and a half later, I came back out only to find that I had left my car running the whole time. <laughs> now, luckily, I was at Chick-fil-A. And so the Lord just, he protected the whole thing. So... 
Now, and I don't know how I end up integrating Chick-fil-A into every sermon I preach, but I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm not sorry, okay? (laughs) Now, I don't think it's that kind of hurry. I don't think it's that kind of hurry. So what kind of hurry is it? Is it like, I'm just trying to get through this so I can get to the good stuff type of thing? Like maybe when you're sitting down at, at dinner and you're like, I just need to get through the veggies so I can get to the cheesecake. Well, I don't think that's quite it either, but I do think it's closer. I think it's more of a patient hurry. You see, I think Mark is just excited to tell the story. I think he's telling a story that he loves. I think every, every time he's, he's moving throughout an action, he's, it's just grabbing you and screaming, wait, there's more. Why is Mark in a hurry? Because this is an action movie. The dialogue is fine, but Mark wants you to see the explosions because it tells us who Jesus is. It tells us why all this matters. It tells us what it means for us. Now, I don't know about you, but actions mean something. And I had a pretty unique experience when I was here, uh, when I started here at Christ Church in 2014. So just to give you some background, I grew up coming to Joplin, um, ironically enough, because my grandma lived here, my dad grew up here, and so I would come here all the time, but I never got to meet my grandpa. But my grandpa preached uh, at Blenville Christian Church in the 70s, and he, and he did that for a while, but I never got to meet him because he passed away when my dad was in high school. And so when I came here to work at Christ Church and people started to see my last name or hear my last name, they would say, are you related to Irv Daly? And I would say, yeah, I am. And all of a sudden they started telling me these stories I'd never heard before. And so many of them were like, your grandpa, you know, he used to go to door to door and just like trying to, trying to tell people about Jesus, trying to get them to see clearly what he's done for them. And he talked about how he would used to preach the gospel all the time. And like lots of people, like more than you would think would be like, your grandpa baptized me. It was moving. It was kind of surreal. But you see, his actions echoed into the present moment. And that's what our actions do. They echo into those they impact, from those they impact, that both the good and the bad. And the truth is, they can, they can hurt for generations, or they can bless, but they show us where our heart is They show us what our love is for. And Mark is trying to squeeze in as many activities and actions of God as possible because he's trying to show you the heart of God. He's trying to show you his love, what he came to do, what happened when the Son of God came. You see, the Son of God is in a hurry to serve, to serve. Now, we're going to spend a little bit more time here because this is what Mark's portrait is leading to. This is unquestionably it. He wants you to see this, that everything Jesus does is designed for you to see that Jesus came to serve. And the passage that we read earlier actually sums this up well. Let me give you some context. Two of Jesus' disciples come to him and they're like, Jesus, uh, we know that you're king. We know that you're going to come and sit on a throne and reign. And we were just wondering, could we have two thrones right next to yours? And the disciples, all the rest of the disciples were like, obviously mad about this, upset. And here's how Jesus answers them. He says, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus says, man, look around you. You know how evil kings act, how authorities act. Why then are you trying to maintain and act in the same way? 
The model of how we exist in the world is not based off of those in power and influence. It's based off of Jesus, and he takes a different approach. You see, Mark is adamant that you would see that Jesus is the Son of God, but he's also adamant that you would see that he never uses that power or relationship for himself. In fact, one of the running themes throughout Mark is that even though he refers to Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus never refers to himself as such. Fourteen times he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Why? Is it because Mark knew he was the Son of God, but Jesus didn't know? Right? And Mark's just imposing that title on him? Well, I don't think so, right? Because otherwise Mark could have just written the words in Jesus' mouth. No, I think Mark's doing something else. There's a lot of reasons, but I think one of the primary ones is that you would begin to see that he's humble. Of his humility, that Jesus is concerned with taking the role of a servant. He's concerned with people not seeing him as a powerful tyrant, but simply as, as a gracious servant. And this is why people are so confused by Jesus. Like they keep having these, these interactions with him and being confused as to who he is. When Jesus banishes a demon in a synagogue, the people of the synagogue say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. When the paralytic is put through the roof and Jesus forgives his sins, the Pharisees ask, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus calms the storm, the disciples ask, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Over and over, people are asking, who is this man? And Jesus doesn't make it easy for them to figure it out either. In fact, he tells almost everyone not to tell who he is. Listen to what he tells the demons when, when they try to, to tell who he is. He says, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. When he had healed a leper, he said, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. After he raised a dead girl back to life, he says, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus says, look around and you can clearly see how the authorities, they use their power for themselves. Look around you and you can see how Caesar is in a hurry to dominate. Look around you. This is why nobody trusts us. But Jesus says, this shouldn't be the same for you because if you're a follower of me, it's service that becomes our posture, not authority. From the very beginning of the gospel, of this good news, of this new king, of this new victory, Jesus is establishing a new kingdom and it is always benefiting the other. Jesus rips people, rips demons from people's bodies and gives them their life back. He gives them back their legs and their hands and Sabbath and dignity. And he could have removed Caesar and, and removed him from his throne and acquired wealth in a moment, but he doesn't. Why? Because he's a servant and he's calling us to be one. He's calling us to stop idolizing leadership and status He's calling us to stop using our gifts and our abilities, our looks and our intellect, our finances, our families, our freedoms, simply to gather more. And it's easy to become like the two disciples, asking God if he can give us more, more time, more health, more treasure. We must be servants. Now, the truth is I could end the sermon here and we would all understand we need to be servants. We'd all probably agree like, yeah, we just need to, I need to serve people better. I need to do that better. But the truth is if we did that, we would be corrupting. We would be distorting the image, the portrait that Mark is trying to paint for us of Jesus. See, most of us in this room have no issue with, with people being better servants, that we need to serve each other. But we fail to do so over and over again 
or we commit our lives to it and we get exhausted. Why? I want you to look at the conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples. You see, they had been serving Jesus the whole time. They'd been serving people around them the whole time. And you know what they thought? They thought, this is going to secure my position. This is what I need to do to be able to sit by Jesus. If I serve people, if I serve Jesus, he's going to give me status. He's going to give me affirmation. He's going to give me love. I will finally feel like I'm enough. I will finally feel like I'm doing something right. I'm contributing to something. This is the only way that I can sit next to Jesus is if I'm just good enough. And that's not what Jesus says. Now listen to what he says in Mark 10, 45. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see what he's saying? He's saying, it's not service that gets you next to me. It's allowing you to let me serve you. He's saying, Mark wants every single person to see that a life with God only happens when we allow him in to change us, to serve us, to move us. And he says, my life is a ransom for you. You were sinful and dead and at a great cost to myself, I am laying my life down that you might find yours. You see, you need him. We must become dependent on this God who, who serves us. And Mark wants us to see that Jesus is a servant, not so that we know how to act, but so that we know who to accept as he continues to allow our lives to finally have life and transformation, not because we, we earned it or were good enough, but because the gracious king stepped in to do something we never could. Do you see the image yet? You see, the reason people needed demons moved out was because they didn't have the spirit moved in. The reason people needed storms calmed is because the sin had, sin had turned this world from a garden to a jungle. The reason people needed fed was because greed had stifled resources. The reason people needed hands and legs were because sin was causing decay. The reason people needed resurrection was because all of us will die because of sin. See, the reason we need Jesus was because all of those things are simply symptoms of our rebellion. They're not the root cause. You see, it's sin and death that must be destroyed, not just the fruit that it bears. And Mark's entire gospel was building to this moment where you would see he's rushing through the narrative in a patient and yet excited way, and he's finally climaxing to what he wants you to see. Listen to what it says in Mark 14. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. You see, this was the last time Mark would use that word immediately again. And then he stops. He slows the whole story down. He says, keep walking. Take a look around. Just take it all in. And he carefully constructs for us the trial, the conviction, and the crucifixion of Jesus so that you might see the greatest miracle of all, that you might see what Jesus is doing, the powerful, wise, compassionate miracle worker that is stepping in and dying the death that we should have died. Every single action, every single dialogue, every single miracle is leading to this point that we would see he was overthrowing sin and death in each of those moments, and now he's going to overthrow it forever. 
This is how Jesus serves. He's taken and he's beaten and he's mocked and he's crucified. And it says darkness falls over the entire land. And then it says in Mark 15, listen to what it says. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Do you see how brilliant this is for Mark? He starts his gospel introducing the good news of the Son of God, but this is the only moment in the entire gospel that a human being understands it and speaks it. This centurion just got done serving Rome, but he was covered by the blood of the Lamb because he saw and believed that the Son of God was serving him, that his need and desperation and dependency on a God who was present. You see, it is in God's greatest moment of suffering that he becomes most clearly seen. It wasn't when he calmed the storm. It wasn't when he raised the dead. It was when Jesus, the son of God, the faithful king, stepped in to die the death we should have died. It was when he served us. And the truth is, church, we will never serve God in the way he calls us to unless we allow him to serve us in the way we most need him to, through rescue, through salvation, so that every act of our service is merely an overflow from a dependence on the action of his. It takes us knowing that we contribute nothing to our life with him, where we can finally become free enough to give all of it away, where we can truly become servants with him, like him. Do you see why this is good news? The victory was won over sin and death. And the good news is reporting it to every single person who's impacted. That's me, and that's you, and that's the whole world. And Mark wants us to see it. You see, Mark's hope is the same hope that this church has, that each one of us, by gazing upon the cross of Christ, would be moved to confess him as God. It's a stunning portrait that invites us in And it's more than a book. It's more than a document. It is a carefully constructed history that includes you. And the question today is not simply will you serve, but will you allow yourself to be served? Will you allow the king to serve you? Will you be humble enough not simply to put your life on the line for others, but allow Jesus and what he has done to truly effectively change everything for you? to let him serve. See, we pray that you will. This is where life is found. In a dependency on the king. You know, as we were talking about prayer over the last few weeks, one of the lines in the Lord's prayer is asking for our daily bread. And I would venture to guess that most of us in this room don't struggle with that at all. But the sentiment is true and real that every single day we would become dependent on the Father, that we would, as if we lacked it, come to him in a dependency, that we would all become beggars again, coming before him, asking for the true bread of life to sustain us and move us, knowing that it is the only way we truly enjoy and become all that he's called us for. 
You see, every person in this room longs for meaning and life and purpose. And what we've been trying to say the whole time is we know it's found in Jesus. He's where our completeness is found. And we're thankful for a series like this. We'll, we'll continue to open up the book and show you what God has revealed to us through the personality of these writers. And we pray that in doing so, we may become like him. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy and true. And your justice is good. And your grace is good. And we sit here today enjoying every part of it because your victory includes us. And Father, we pray that our lives would continue to be changed and transformed, not from an eagerness to earn our spot with you, but from a response of knowing that you have given us the seat already. Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray, that we worship, that we sing to the power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.